Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. If you would, you can turn back to the book of Ruth, and we're going to look at the life of Ruth. It's a very interesting little book. It takes place during the period of the Judges and takes place in some dark times for the nation of Israel. Uh, if you really want to see what the time of the Judges was like, you know, probably the best example is the life of Samson. Up, down, up, down, in, out. Very unstable. But Ruth is a shining star in the midst of that period. And it's interesting, it's, it's the only book in the Bible totally devoted to a woman. Which is pretty remarkable, and then even more remarkable when you, when you realize that Ruth wasn't even a Jew. She was from Moab. And Moab, that nation, was founded from the child that Lot's daughter bore to him through their incestuous night. After Sodom and Gomorrah were, were destroyed, Lot's two daughters thought, hey, world's ending. If, if humanity's going to survive, we've got to get pregnant, and we only got one man left on the face of the earth, and that's Dad. Let's get him drunk, have sex with him, make a baby. Well, that product of incest founded the nation of Moab. And they were, they were not you know, the sweetest people around. Their primary god was the um, god Chemosh. He had several nails. He was known also in the Bible as Baal Peor, uh, Baalzebub, where we get the Greek term Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Uh, Lord of the Flies because he's Lord of Death. In fact, one of the chief ways that um, they, they worship Chemosh, and usually... You have to remember that, that most of the pagan gods of the Canaanites were fertility gods. Their whole existence, their life, revolved around getting enough crops to survive. They, they literally lived hand-to-mouth. We talk about living hand-to-mouth in this country. Nobody in this country lives hand-to-mouth. The only way for anybody to, be, to starve to death would be to, to lock them up and not allow them out somewhere. Because we got all kinds of programs. I mean, our, our, our poorest of our poor are poor because they have to drive old cars or ride the bus and they only have a 30-inch flat screen instead of a 60-inch flat screen. You know, our poor, you know, when, when, and I love it when, you know, a lot of people now want to protest the 1%. We are the 1%. When you look at the whole world, we are the rich of the rich. And if you take even the poorest in the world today, they, most of them are better off than the, the richest in this time, in the time of, of Ruth. They, they literally had no medicines other than some herbal remedies. They had um, you know, very little heat. They hadn't, air conditioning was not even thought of. Um, they, they were literally a few months from starvation any time. 
And starvation was a real reality in their world. Uh, the only people that face starvation in the earth today are people that are in war zones. Because every nation that has severe famine and they lose their crops, the rest of the world loads up food by the ton on ships and planes and we get it to them and we feed them. And the only way that they can't get that food is if there's a war going on and somebody with a gun says, you're not taking it to them, that's our enemy, let them starve. I mean, they still starve, but, but we have virtually eliminated that. But these people face that. And when things really got trouble, and we're going to look in, in, in a minute, in verse 1 of Ruth 1, um, there was famine in the land around Bethlehem. There was drought. And when drought hit, people, their crops failed, and then you didn't have food. And you wondered whether you were going to live or not. Well, that was part of that. And I'm convinced this is John's theology, and you can accept it or reject it. And I think it's part of the reason that God won't, won't allow us with all of our technology to control the weather patterns. You know, you watch all of the futuristic Star Trek, Star Wars, all of the, the science fiction, they go to the future, we all control, we have weather machines that control the weather. God will never allow us to control the weather. That God wants us to know that we are dependent upon Him for the rain. Now we can control things locally and we can irrigate and we can do modern things, but God's ultimately in control and He lets us know that. For the, the Jew, for the believer, when, when things turned bad, God wants, the, the point of, of God allowing those pressures to come is God wants us to turn in faith to Him as, as our provider and exercise our faith in a good God. The Moabites turned to Chemosh, and Chemosh says, I want blood. And quite literally, they would take newborns, and they would th Chemosh was, was worshipped as a big brass idol. It was hollow. And they would start a huge fire under it, and they would get this thing hot, and they would take their babies and throw them in to this idol, and literally cook them alive. And we, we, we look at that, and we think, how horrible. And yet... I forget the number now. Millions upon millions that we've aborted to the God of convenience since Roe v. Wade. We are no different. We are, people are just as depraved today for all of our sophistication, for all of our technology. We are just, the world is just as depraved today as they were in Moab. But God had put a curse on Moab. You've got to keep that in mind. But, but this story of Ruth, um, Ruth is a type of a Gentile bride. She's not, for, she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. In fact, um, um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 23.3, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. God has put a curse on that nation. And yet God is going to bring Ruth back to Bethlehem, arrange for it sovereignly. And it's not, it's not just God moving on her. She's, she has to be a willing participant. That's part of what we're going to look at. We have the power to choose. And our decisions decide our destiny. 
And, but Ruth made a decision, and God not only brought her in, brought her to a Jewish bride, Boaz, who is a type of the kinsman redeemer. He is a, 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 a type of Christ in our lives. And he brings her in, and she not only becomes a Jew and is accepted in the Jewish family, but she becomes an ancestor of Jesus himself. That's pretty amazing. When, when God's in his law... Moabites are cursed forever. They shall not be part of my assembly. And then God says, except for Ruth, we're going to bring her in. The point was, Ruth quit being a Moabite when she made the decision to come in. Yet I'm getting ahead of myself. But this, this book is also a love story, which everybody loves love stories. Right, guys? Just, just say that to yourself over and over as, when your wife turns on the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> yes, dear, I would love to watch a Hallmark movie with you. Or a couple. But this is a love story. The, the story was told when Benjamin Franklin was our ambassador to France. He was part of the Infidels Club. Not a great name. But, but the Infidels Club basically was a group that got together and they were a reading club and they, they, they would look for new stories and read stories and read. primarily they were looking for masterpieces that would influence their lives. But they were infidels. They, they openly declared, because you have to remember this is um, 1700s in France. They had rejected the church. They would rejected most everything. This was, you know, shortly after our revolution, the French Revolution came in. When America went through their revolution, we declared we want freedom. When France finished their revolution, they just chopped heads off of everybody. And they started with the rich. By the time they got done, they were just killing people. Anybody that, that made them angry, send them to the guillotine, take their head off. So this, you're already seeing that in their society long before the revolution. But on one occasion, Franklin decided that he was going to read the book of Ruth to the club. And he did. But he changed the wording so that they would not recognize that it came from the Bible. And when he finished, they demanded to know where he got such a remarkable love story. Let us know. We want to put this in print. Everybody needs to know about this story. It's the greatest love story ever told. Where did you get it? And then Franklin looked at him and smiled and said, it's in the Bible, it's in print, been in print for thousands of years. They just had never bothered to ever read it. Amen? So, we're here in, in Ruth. Um, Israel, at least around Bethlehem, was in, in a drought in, in Ruth 1. It's verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. They had had drought, there was no food, everything was getting tight. Now keep in mind, this is during the time of the judges. Hold your place there in Ruth 1, turn back one page to the very last book of the book of Judges. It's Judges 21 verse 25. This, is the, this, this one verse sums up all of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right 
what was right in his own eyes. That was what the nation did. Well, brother, you know, that's truth to you, but that's not my truth. And I know that, you know, this, is, this works for you, but I've got another truth that I'm going after. Once again, there's nothing new under the sun. The world is still saying that. They said it in the time of judges. They're saying it today. We act like our, our, um, our society is, is, you know, going down the drain, and it is. But in actuality, we're just going back to the norm. We had a small window in this country, and I say small, maybe 100 years, 150 years, where the Bible was a great influence, and it, at least on the surface, people adhered to biblical norms. But that is not the norm for the world. Never has been, never will be. Men are dreadfully evil in their heart. It's a big difference between if you examine the philosophy of humanists and, and I, I say this with a, a grain of salt, the Christian philosophy, because Christianity is more than a philosophy, but if you accept Christ, it does influence how you view the world, which is basically what the general meaning of a philosophy is. And Christians have the worldview that at the core of every human being is a fallen, desperately evil creature who has to have redemption to come out of that. I read a story this morning about these, uh, it was a a football player, he's grown now, but his, um, in in high school and and the, 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 religious leader and the coach, well, the religious leader's dead now of old age, and the coach is in a nursing home somewhere. But they had a debate in a prayer meeting, a Bible study for the football team. So we're going back to the 50s or 60s. And these two men were arguing or debating, not arguing. They were debating what it means to be human. And the one guy was saying, to be human is to be desperately evil, and Christ is the is to to accept Christ to become a Christian makes you normal. But to be human is to be fallen. The other guy was saying, "No, I think that to be human means that you are fallen," and it's just a different way of looking at it. But the guy said, "After all the years I've lived, I've come to the conclusion that." We are desperate, but God's intention for us is true humanity. And His intention is to recreate us and put us back where we were supposed to be all along. Our fallen nature, our sin nature, who we are and how we are when we don't follow God is not the real us. Even for sinners, now don't don't misunderstand me, that is their nature. They are sinners by nature. Everyone born into the world is a sinner by nature. But God's intent for mankind was this higher nature, this redeemed nature. And it only comes through Christ. But once you get into it, you have become normal now. And the the pity of it is, is most of us don't act normal. We still identify with that old man. You know, it's interesting, uh, actually the tradition is starting to wane some, 
which also doesn't surprise me, but it, it's been the tradition for hundreds of years in Christian societies. When a woman gets married, she takes the last name of her husband. Have you ever thought about why that happens? It's because when, when Paul said in, in Ephesians, marriage is a type of our relationship with Christ. When we marry Him, which is the new birth experience, we, when we physically get married, we become one flesh with another person. When we spiritually marry Christ, we take on His name because we have changed identification. We have changed identities. We have changed our very nature. Our old nature is who we, we identify with, though. And the shame is I meet Christians day in and day out that they still think they're that old man that they used to be. Because they don't get into this word. They don't, as we said in Psalm 107 earlier. They don't get in and give thanks for God is good and He has changed me. Ruth isn't in that, in that, that group. But because of this time in Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because of that, there are dark times. And it's manifested itself. And when it says there was famine in the land, <clears throat> where Ruth or where Naomi is where the story starts with Naomi and Abimelech they live in Bethlehem Bethlehem literally means house of bread that's got to be God judging that nation and that area because why would God give it the 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 name house of bread and then withhold bread That'll be like my dad calling me, you are, you are my favorite son, and then treat me like a dog. You know, it was funny. We were, I was teasing um, Aubrey or, or Audrey earlier, and I said something about her, her dog. She said her dog had a problem with her eyes, with his eye, and I said, well, quit poking it in the eye. And she said, oh, I'd never poke my, my dog in my eye. She said, now, am I my brother? But not my dog. <laughs> and I told her, I said, well, I want to stay on the dog side of your ledger, not your brother's side of your ledger. But sometimes that's how we are. We, we forget that our brother, Jesus, we're on his side of the ledger and we're thinking that, oh, the, the dog side over here is really where we belong. No, I was a pig. I was an unclean animal. Now I'm a sheep. Even if I go play in the pig pen, I'm just a dirty sheep. I haven't become a pig. I only get to change my nature once. Now, because of all of the decisions of the nation, there is famine in the land. But notice what it says here. Let's go back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land because they were all doing what was ever right in their own sight. And a certain man of Bethlehem, this house of bread in Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. And he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Abimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the, the names of the two sons were Malon and Shilion. They were Ephraites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now... It's interesting if you look at, because we look at names as just, it's a name. It's my identification. And I don't care, you know, the, the, the state will take your name away. They give you a, a number. 
Used to, when you looked at your driver's license, you had your social security number, and then with identity theft, they decided, no, we're not using your social security number, but we'll give you another number that's the same structure as your social security number, but this is your number. And if a policeman pulls you over and he gets your identification, when he types in, he uses your number, not your name. Because there may be hundreds of people with the same name, but there's only one of you in their records with the number. So as far as the state goes, I'm a number. The state of Indiana has me as a number. The federal government has me as a number. And that's all they care about. What's your number? Well, we look at our names sometimes as our number. It's just an identification. But when God names people, He names them to say, this is what your essence is. This is what you are like. I, I loved it. And I, I'll, I'll admit it. When my kids were born, we just picked out cool names. We didn't care. My, my first daughter was Christine. My second daughter was Johnny Diane. Johnny spelled J-O-N-N-I and Diane D-Y-A-N because my name was John and my wife's name was Diana. We wanted her named after both of us. Why did we do that? Because she's ours and we wanted to imprint our name on her. If I'd have thought about it for a second, I wouldn't have labeled that child with my nature and my, my ex-wife's nature. That's a terrible thing to do. Because I don't care how great your parents are, they're really, at their core, they're not that great. But when God names you, when, when they, they looked at their names as their, who they really are, their nature. Abimelech means, my God is king. Quite literally, literally it's, it's using El for the, the, for the term God. God. El is king. Naomi means, my delight. Wow, when you put pair up, God is my king and this woman is my delight, you've got to have some good offspring. Well, they did. Malon literally means to dance and Chilion means completion. Great family. But when famine hit, what did they do? They decided, Ooh, there's, you know, we, we, we don't have our provision here anymore. Things are tight. Now, we do that, and, and this, this story really doesn't have so much to do with location as it does following the will of God. Because I'll be honest with you, uh, in Gina's in my life, when we went through our hard years a few years ago, um, um, we lost our church, I lost my job, she lost her job, and suddenly we're in bankruptcy. And I thought, well, I'm a science teacher. They're in huge demand, so I picked a 50-mile radius and applied to every school and got no job offers, none. So the next year, after I spent an entire year substitute teaching for 40 to $50 a day, which that ain't much money, and that's, a, that's the hardest job I will ever do in my life. Nothing harder than that. The next year, I decided I got to find a job and I got to find something that pays more than this. So I applied to every school district in Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, and Illinois. And I got three job offers out of like four or five states. And we ended up, we relocated to Indianapolis. That's what brought us up here was I had to have work. Well, it wasn't that, 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 I was out of the will of God because I came to Indianapolis to find work. God wants us to work. But to be honest with you, I really wasn't seeking God about 
where I wanted to work. To be honest with you, I wanted the other two jobs because they were down in central Kentucky and they were like where I grew up. They were out in the wilderness. You could go buy a couple of acres and you could look around and not see a house or a farm for miles. That's where I want to live. Instead, we came to Indianapolis and I took a job in an inner city school at IPS, which to this day I look back and look at my grandkids and my son and say, this is because of you. Because my kids, my son and my grandkids were here in Indianapolis, we relocated here to be close to them rather than farther away. Didn't realize, except with hindsight, God was leading us here. Because I was, I was dealing with a lot of bitterness because of the problems we had. And, you know, I had a pastor one time when we were in, in Broken or in Tulsa. He, uh, he said, you've never been ripped off till you've been ripped off by someone that has a fish on their business card. Well, I had, I had an entire church worth of people that, you know, we're behind you. Go ahead and borrow a couple hundred thousand dollars and we'll build this church and we're right there with you. And when things got rough, they were behind me, all right. They were about nine miles behind me. And I'm not, I'm not condemning them. There were a whole lot of reasons that went on. But I needed restoration. And I'll be honest with you. God brought me right here to get restored. Amen? To this body of believers. And for all his problems, uh, Michael Ennis loved me back into going to church and being able to be around Christians. Because I told God before we ever came to this church, I love you, I'm really looking forward to going to heaven, but if I never talk to another Christian, it will be fine with me. I don't like them. They are the meanest creatures on God's green earth. And just leave me alone and don't tell me, go back to church, I don't want to. Now he had already told me in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But I didn't want to hear that. I just knew I was mad. And so I stayed away. And Mike loved me back in. Now I realize he has some problems, but he still had a lot of good things too. I don't know who I said that for, but that's for somebody. But in this case, Abimelech or Imelech, Naomi, they're thinking, we got to eat. And they come from a fairly wealthy family because we're going to look in chapter 2 when we get there a couple of weeks. Boaz was part of the family and he's very wealthy. So these are probably businessmen. They have some money. So they decide to relocate to Moab. Well, that would be like me being out of work and, and, and all of these problems are going on. It's like, well, I didn't find a teaching job, so I'm just going to have to go find a job. Well, they're, they're looking for somebody to run the strip club down here. I'll just go do that. And I know, you, you know, you laugh, but that's exactly what Abimelech's doing. He's going into the enemy's camp to get his stuff. He has put, rather than looking to God and saying, you bless me where I am. There's famine in the land, but I'm believing you to bless what I'm going to do. Instead, he went to the world and went to the world's way, and, you know, it cost him. It cost him big time. One of the things, Revelation 2.14, this is God speaking to one of the churches. He says, I have a few things against you because you, you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. When he talks about Balaam and Balak, he's talking about the gods of Moab, Baal Peor, Beelzebub, Chemosh. Later on in, in Greek and Roman society, they became Mars and Saturn. Same gods, just different names. We still have them today, just different names. But there, there were choices. There was a choice that, that Abimelech had to make. Deuteronomy 30, 19, very recognizable voice. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may leave. Abimelech had a, had a choice. I can stay here in the house of bread and believe God to feed me. Or I can go to Moab and work naturally there, even though it's full of sin. Now remember, God didn't call him to go to Moab. That would be different. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was just as bad as Moab. But there's a difference, God calling you to go into the enemy's camp, and you deciding to go to the enemy's camp because God can't provide for you here. World's a difference. Abimelech is going into the enemy's camp because God couldn't provide for him anymore in, in, in Bethlehem. God's given us that freedom of choice. Unfortunately, we don't have the freedom to be uh, absolved from the consequences of our choice. That, that whole word today, choice, you pro-choice, you, you not choice. It's got huge ramifications for us. And let's face it, the whole, that whole thing in our society is do, do you um, believe that abortion should be available or abortion should not be available? And it comes down to the value of an unborn child. Because the fact is, when you get pregnant, period, no other options available. You are going to have a child. Your only choice is do you give birth to a live child or a dead child. That's the only choice you're getting. You're going to give birth to a child. Dead or alive. It's the only choice you have. There are consequences to that. That's why God said in Deuteronomy 30, you, I put before you today life and death. Choose life. He, I mean, he not only gives us a test, he gives us the answer. Be like me when I was teaching. Look, you're, here's the question. Your two choices are A and B. It's A. It's A. Choose A. Well, anybody that fails that test, fails that questions, you know. In fact, I remember when I was teaching junior high, the, the, the angriest I've ever seen a student with me, I always wanted to have even numbers because it just made calculating grades easier. If you had 50 questions, you'd double it, that's your percentage. I don't want to have to take time to sit down and do calculations. I can do math, I just don't like it. So I would add questions, and the, the, the one question I added on one of the tests was, what color is the red ball? And it was fill in the blank. And this kid came up just furious. We did not cover this in class. And I'm looking at him like, really? And in his mind, it was a trick question. You didn't cover it. How can I answer it? Well, it was self-evident. 
But, but for him, it just it threw him for a loop, you know? But, but God doesn't, he, this is what Deuteronomy 30, 19 does. It's a question like, what color is the red ball? And he thought, well, it depends on what kind of light you put in it. It's, don't make it complicated. But when, when we are faced with choices, and we are all, remember, choices will define your destiny. And by destiny, I don't mean that, that, you know, because the Bible does talk about predestination, and God has predestined us for, for salvation. But it doesn't just mean that we have no choice. This is where we're going to end up no matter what. You're going to get here. There, are, there is a school of thought in school of theology today, and if you listen enough on YouTube, you'll occasionally you'll run up against them. I call them hyper-Calvinist, where basically it's God's choice. And He has created every human being to either to go to heaven or go to hell. Doesn't matter what you do. You're either, if, he comes, if He created you to go to heaven, He's going to pour out His grace on you and you cannot resist it. That has reduced us to automatons. We have no free will. And that is not what God does. He's provided salvation for everybody, but we get to choose. You can go to hell if you want to choose it, but you can also choose life. Well, the first thing we have to do is look at our motive. What do I I need? Well, for Abimelech, he's looking around and he said, there's famine. All I see is famine. His famine became greater than God's grace and God's provision. And when, his, when famine became greater in his mind than God's provision, he had to go somewhere else. But if he had, had thought about it, and David hadn't written the Psalms, but this, God was still would have revealed this to him had he sought God about it. In Psalm 37, 25, David said, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. God will get you what you need to have if you will believe Him to do it. Now that doesn't just mean that we get to, you know, well, I need $1,000. Okay, Lord, I'm sitting down, bring it to me. You know, bring a dog with a paper sack with, you know, 10 $100 bills. I'll just wait right here for him. No, it's not a passive waiting I remember um, Pastor Bob, our pastor when I was in Bible school, told the story of a guy who came for counseling. He said, Brother, you have preached prosperity and prosperity. And he said, I don't understand. I'd be believing for God to prosper me. And I'm getting nothing but job offers. And Pastor Bob looked at him and said, Well, yeah. In his mind, he was expecting a dog with a paper sack with money that he didn't have to do anything. Just sit and live on faith. No faith, has, you have to put your, your foot to do something. If, you know, the old story, towns in the midst of drought, the believers all meet at the, um, at the uh, church to pray for rain. And the little boy's sitting there and he bashfully holds his hand up and he said, Preacher, I don't understand. I thought we were going to get in faith for rain. He said, we are. He said, but nobody brought umbrellas. It's a small sign, but it, sometimes those small signs mean things. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 30, or 33, 
Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our business is to seek God and seek His righteousness, and He'll take care of the stuff. I like stuff. You know, the old story, the old quip, what's the difference between little boy's toys and big boy's toys? Only one difference. That's the cost. I still like toys. It's just my toys are a lot more expensive now. I like toys, but I don't seek after the toys. Proverbs says, and I don't have the, the address, but it says, <clears throat> in, in wisdom's hand is long life and riches. She has long life, which means health and physical prosperity. She has riches, which is plenty of money. The problem is if you go after the long life or you go after the riches, you miss wisdom and you get nothing. But if you go after wisdom and embrace her, you get what's in her hands. It's where our motive is. What am I after? Am I after to know God as good Americans? Most Americans, we love things and we use God. If you've been in the ministry any time or hung around Christians many long, you will see people. I had used to have a, a friend. She was a friend of, of Gina's when we got married. She would come by every once in a while, usually when life fell apart, things were hard, she would come by and want us to pray for. God would come in, she'd show up at church, she'd come in, her life would get a little better, and we wouldn't see her until life crashed again. That's just loving stuff and using God. God will do that. He will, he will move heaven and earth to try to get you blessed, but at some point, He's not going to be a genie. He can't, he's not going to be that little Buddha that you walk in, you rub His belly, and you get your wish. He wants to be God, and He wants us to treat Him like God. We are called to love God, but to use things. He's not opposed to giving us things as long as those things don't get a grip on us. When those things become more important than Him... He will cut us off from the things. Amen? And I know a lot of us are thinking, wow, how do we do that? Well, Paul said in Romans 4.17, God, and, and we are supposed to be an imitator of God. He said, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. When we have circumstances, we need to speak, we need to get into the book Get in God's will, find out what God's will is for me, for now, and then speak it into existence because I have God's word on it. Not because my words are magic, they're not. But if God says, this is yours, then I have to agree with Him and declare it. That's how He created the entire universe. He spoke it into existence. Everything he's done, when, when, when um, um, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he didn't go in and lay hands on Lazarus. He stood outside and he spoke to Lazarus' body and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out totally healed. Been in the grave for four days, so he didn't just, it wasn't just whatever disease killed him. He was rotten in a, in a, a hot climate. Dead body, four days, it's pretty much liquefied by that time. And yet he walked out perfectly healthy and perfectly well from God's Word. 
fact, there's a story if you read, and, and I don't have time to go in there and look at it, and there's a little bit of speculation in here, but it, it makes sense to me. If you read the story of, of when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, the guards came, um, um, Judas gave him the kiss, and they asked him, they said, Are you Jesus? And his answer was, I am. He used God's name, Jehovah. He said it aloud, which was forbidden by any Jew. You read in a, uh, there is a translation called um, the Jewish translation, and everywhere where Jehovah is written, they will put Adonai, or Lord. They won't say that. They won't try to pronounce that name. Jesus used it, and the entire company of soldiers fell back. He knocked them all down. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it may have happened twice. And then just a couple of verses later, it talks about this young boy showed up with just a towel around him, totally naked, with just a sheet. And they asked him who he was. Well, tradition tells us that that was John Mark. And the tradition is what he had on was his burial cloth. That he had just died that day or the day before and he was in his grave. And when Jesus said, I am, there was so much power in that word, it knocked those soldiers down and brought John Mark out of the grave. And John Mark was the one who ended up, he, he went with, with um, um, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey with such a young man, got scared, got homesick, ran off. Paul split with Barnabas, first church split. Happened real early in church history. And he said, I'm not going with you anymore, Barnabas, because Barnabas said, we're taking John Mark. And Paul said, I'm not taking him. And he said, well, I'll go without you. So we have writings of what Paul did. We don't know what Barnabas did, but we do know that later in Paul's life, he said, send Mark. And have him bring, I forget, a cloak and some, some, uh, some papyrus, some, some scrolls, because he's of use to me in the ministry. That's John Mark. Barnabas restored John Mark. Paul wrote him off. You failed me once, I'm done with you. Barnabas took him out and restored him and brought him up and raised him up, matured him up. And then Paul said, hey, this is working out pretty good, I'll use him. You see, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul was not a perfect man. He still had some problems too. But what do we do? Well, we would never do that. I mean, life gets hard. We never run off to Moab. Really? Let me read a couple of verses to you. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You, you decide you're going to tithe, you start giving, you start giving to the church, you start giving to ministries, and suddenly things get tight. Car breaks down. Washing machine goes out. You got to do this, you got to do that. And it's like, I can't afford to tithe anymore. Suddenly you have gone from Bethlehem to Moab. Why? I didn't say it. You have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of war, the Lord of the armies of heaven says, test this thing out for me. 
That's a pretty good, that's a pretty strong word right there. But what's he promised to do? Number one, test me and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing that there won't be room enough for you to receive it. The last time he talked about opening the windows of heaven is when the flood of Noah came and all humanity perished. That's a pretty big window. But instead of raining judgment when we decide that we're going to do it God's way, there's a famine in my land. Look at my checkbook. I got proof there's famine here. And God says, well, start giving me my part. And I'll open the windows of heaven and I'll flood you with such blessings you can't contain them. Second thing, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of war. When God, I can rebuke the devil and make him flee when I do it in Jesus' name. But the God of war, the God of all the armies of heaven, when he rebukes the devil, I better be using his name, because that's the only thing the devil respects. But God will not allow the, the, the devil to destroy the fruit of your ground. I'll tell you a real quick story. When Gina and I got married, when, before we got married, she was married. Her husband was in the Air Force. He decided, I don't want to be married anymore. And he sent her home with a two-year-old, pregnant, and $40. And her dad bought her, and I'm going back to late 70s, 78, 79, somewhere in that time frame. Her dad bought her a 69 Cutlass. Nice little car, but it was old. It, you know, it was in good shape, but it, it ran well. Well, we, I inherited that when I came into her life and we got married. And we got ready to go. To, uh, we're going to go to Bible school. We're going to Tulsa. And I know God wants to bless us, but I'm going back to school. I've got to pay tuition. I'm going to have to be working at night rather than working during the day. I'm not going to get a job paying what my teaching job used to pay I got to get the cars fixed and ready to run so I don't have to put any major investment in my cars for the next two three years so I took it to a mechanic now you have to understand between when when Gina's husband sent her home and we got married when Tiffany was born she barely had food to put in that baby's mouth I mean at the end of the month she had pennies left over because I remember one time when we first started dating, she ran out of formula. I ran to the store and she said, this is what I need. I went, I'm not buying a can of formula. I bought a case of formula. And I came back in, she liked to pass out. I can't afford to buy a case. And I looked at her and I said, did you buy it? Well, no, but I got to pay you back. I said, no, you don't. This is for the baby. Dear God, I'm not going to let a baby go hungry. That's kind of heartless. But she was, things were that tight. She would pray sometimes. Her car's on empty. She's got to go to church. She'd say, God, you've got to get Ryan and me to church. And she'd get in and go. And I don't know how many times she ran that car on empty, and God just kept it going. But the story was, I, there was something that was a little wrong with the car, and so the guy, oh, he, he wanted to check the water pump. So he pulls the water pump off this, this big 350, and when he does, the timing chain is exposed. And he sits there and he looks at this timing, timing chain and he say, sees five breaks in a metal timing chain. Five places this chain is severed. And it still runs. Why? Because she tithed 
every time she got a check and she was struggling to feed her own child. And God said, I will honor that. I will not allow the enemy to devour this old car. I don't care what's wrong with it. It's going to run. You just go. And she went. And he said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, take the pieces out and put a new timing chain in. I can afford it now. Fix it. That's what God wants to do. And the third thing he says in, in verse 12, he said, For I will make you to be a delightful land. Three promises if we will stay in Bethlehem and not run off and do things the world's way. He will, re, he will pour out blessings larger than we can contain. He will rebuke the devourer and he will make us to be a delightful land. He's going to make you happy. Amen? Now, Let's get in to Ruth. They went to Moab. And when they got there, the husband dies. Well, I don't know if it's in that order. But when they got there, the two sons got married. They, they married Ruth and Orpha. The dad died. Both the sons died. Now you got three widows in a foreign land. And what are you going to do? In that day and age, widows starved to death especially in Moab. Now, in a Jewish nation, they had the law of gleaning. They had a law, don't, don't harvest the corners, leave occasional food there. And the poor people would come in and they would glean that. They would pick those and that, would, that was their form of welfare, which was good because they gave people a little bit of dignity. They worked for their own food. They had to harvest it. But there was something provided. Moab didn't have that. So they're in the, 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 the land. In verse 6 of, of Ruth 1, it says that they heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited His people by giving them bread. The drought had ended. Now there's prosperity in Bethlehem. Let's go back. She's not doing much that her husband hadn't already done. She's looking at her circumstances. And she wasn't in the greatest uh, position. She, in verse um, 8, Naomi said to the, her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. Notice that phrase. It's your people. This is both of the, the widowed daughters. But Naomi said in verse 11, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight... And should also bear sons. Would you wait for them until they were grown? She was talking about the law of, of, of if, if one son dies, his wife becomes the wife of another son, and that he would raise up children to his dead brother. All of her kids are gone. She said, if I got pregnant today, which is not going to happen because I'm too old, you're not going to be able to wait till those children, till those boys are old enough to take a wife. She said, would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is God punishing her in her mind. 
God's getting me back. This is horrible advice. To the point, we're not going to go there right now, but in verse 20, when she gets back, the people are going to say, is this Naomi? Is this Miss Pleasant? And she's going to look at him and say, no, my name is Mara. Bitterness. So what did they do? Well, verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. All the answer they've got, let's just cry together. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now there's a lot said right there. When hard times hit, you're going to have kissers and clingers. The kissers will kiss you and kiss you goodbye. And they're gone. Because hard times will decide whether you're going to stick it out or not stick it out in any relationship. But the clingers will latch onto you and they won't let go. I'm here for thick or thin. I'm here come hell or come high water. I'm not going anywhere. I don't care how hard it gets. Notice what Naomi says, though, in verse 15. Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi's still trying to run Ruth off. But Ruth changes her, her story here a little bit. She says, but Ruth says, entreat me. Beg, that means to beg or implore. Don't tell me again to leave you or to turn back from following you. Notice the phraseology here. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And notice earlier, verse 10, that surely you will return, we will return with you to your people. Now when Ruth's talking to, to um, Naomi, she says, your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. She's been raised for 10 years or lived 10 years in a Jewish household. She knew who Jehovah was. Because even Jews in Moab are still going to do the Jewish festivals. They're still going to have uh, uh, the Sabbath. She knows who Ruth's God is. And in the hard times, she says, I'm going to believe with, that your God is going to bless us. Ruth's got more faith than Naomi's God. And notice in verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Now notice the next little phrase. And the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. She just invoked a blood covenant right there. She may not have cut a covenant, but she invoked, used the language of a blood covenant. I am going to, this is a promise to death. May God strike me dead if I don't fulfill this. That's a blood covenant. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. In other words, Naomi said, okay, Ruth, I can see you're set on doing this. I'm going to quit arguing with you. Go with me. Wow. But in that moment, Ruth moved from being in a cursed position of being a Moabitess to being in the lineage of David and ultimately in the lineage of Jesus. She made a choice even in the midst of the consequences of her bad choices. Now, Ruth hadn't necessarily made bad choices. She was born in Moab. You don't have a choice where you're born. That's just your lot. But God gave Ruth a choice. You can stay in the cursed position, or you can put your faith in, in Naomi's Redeemer, and Ruth said, I'm going with the Redeemer. 
And before that ever happened, God had already prepared Boaz. We're not going to meet Boaz until chapter 2, which we're not going to meet him today. But we, we don't meet him until chapter 2, but God's already prepared Boaz. What that reminds me of, and this is what I want to close with, Luke 15, 20. This is the story of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son's sitting in the middle of the pig pen, he's in Moab, figuratively. And he said, if I was just a servant in my father's house, I'd be better off than this. I'm going home. I'll just be a slave to my father. At least I'll be fed and clothed. I've seen how he treats our servants. He treats them pretty well. I'm a son, but I'm going to live as a servant from this point on because I've messed up. But in verse 20, speaking of the father, it says, When he arose and, well, sorry, that's speaking of the son. When he arose and came to his father, but when he, the father, was still, or the son was still a great way off, his father saw him and he was moved with compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is a type of Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus coming to us. When we take just a little step towards Jesus, He runs at us and embraces us and kisses us on the neck. He says, you are mine. All we did was take one little step and wham, He's on us. Why? Because he gets up every morning and says, how can I bless my people today? That's all that's on his mind. He is our kinsman redeemer. And I know I hardly even got into Ruth, but we will get there eventually. But Ruth got in on this. Naomi is still bitter. Ruth is in faith. And Ruth's faith... An unbeliever, a non-Jew, is going to come up with the faith in the Redeemer that will carry Naomi back into the blessings. That is us. We are a Gentile bride. And I know I've heard people say, well, God, you know, I don't believe in this prosperity message. Well, usually what they call a prosperity message is, I don't believe in it either. That's what I was describing earlier, where you expect God to bless you and you just sit down and do nothing. But God does want to prosper you. God wants to, to bless you beyond measure. Why? So that your faith will draw the Jewish nation in. All you've got to do is look at what's happening in Israel today. God is working on the Jews. He is, he's blessing them. They have turned the desert back into a flower garden. You realize that Israel today provides almost all of the fresh fruit for all of Europe? And when, after World War II, when, when the Jews came back and they created a nation, there was not a tree anywhere in that, in that whole area. Because the Turks, back, I don't know, 50, 100 years before that, said, we need more taxes, so we're going to tax every tree in your country. You own land, if it's got 50 trees, you're paying taxes on 50 trees. Well, those people don't have to be real smart. If you're going to tax my trees, I'm getting rid of my trees. And they stripped the country bare. 
And the Jews have come in and they have planted that place and they, they have, it's a dry land. They have invented ways of irrigating that no one had thought of before. Lo and behold, God's given them ideas of how to get blessed. And they are prospering beyond measure. God wants us to prosper beyond that. If you watch the opening of, of our new embassy in Jerusalem, John Hagee was one of the guests who got up to pray. And John Hagee is accepted there and blessed there. The Jews in Israel love him. Why? Because he's taken all the riches of America and he's showering it on the Jewish nation. He's finding ways, inventive ways to bless them. Why? Because God wants to provoke them to jealousy. Just like He's going to use Ruth to bless Naomi and bring her back into the field so that she can change her name back from Myra, bitterness, into my delight. God created her to be His delight, but she became bitter. And He wants to change her bitterness back to delight by blessing her through Ruth. God wants to use us to take a bitter people. They've been persecuted, spit on, killed, murdered for centuries. And He's calling us as the church to bless them. Believe me, there is only one reason that this nation blesses Israel. Because if they didn't, the church would rise up and the pitchforks and torches would come out. But even a, 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 a um, non-believer will do the right thing because he knows it will benefit him. And our nation is supporting them because the church supports them. And we are the, the Ruth to Israel's Naomi. They need to be blessed because God still has a call on that nation. And He has a purpose for them. And He's called us to help bring that purpose about. Amen? Now, our choice, and this is the choice we have, it begins with the new birth. After you get born again, it, begins, it, it transitions into how are you going to live? What are your decisions? You know, uh, uh, you make big decisions, sometimes it makes the smaller decisions easier. Sunday afternoon for years in our family, it's a tradition. Where do you want to go eat? I don't care. Well, let's go there. No, I don't want to go there. I've said for years I could make a fortune if I could ever start two, two restaurants, corners of each city block. One is, is I don't care, and the other one is no, not there. But once you decide this is where we're going to go eat, the, the rare occasion in our family, we've decided this is where we're going to go eat. And usually it's because we already arranged to meet somebody there. Getting there is easy. You get in the car, you go to the restaurant. That big decision made all the little turning and which street and whatever made those small decisions easy. Because I had a destination. Once I know Jesus is my Lord, that big decision makes a lot of smaller decisions easy. Because I know my destination. And how is this going to help me get to my destination? And it's not just my destination, because remember, my purpose as a Christian is not to get to heaven. If God wanted me in heaven, the second we got born again, He'd take us to heaven. He wants us, and our whole purpose in staying on this earth, is to bring more with us. 
And my big decision is I'm going to heaven. My smaller decisions is how do I live that will attract people and bring them in, in the fold with me. Because I don't want to go and be there alone. I want to go with thousands and hundreds and millions with me. I've said all along, I don't, and I've studied prophecy a lot, I don't see the United States in prophecy. I'm hoping that the reason I don't see it in prophecy is when the rapture happens, three-fourths of the country just empty. Instead of being, well, I don't know, what's our population, close to 400 million? Reduce it to 50 million. 100 and, or 350 million are, we're gone, we're in heaven. This country won't function. You reduce the population by that much. They're helpless. You can't do all the stuff. You can't run all the, the, the power plants and everything. We're going to go back to the 1800s. I want, when the rapture happens, I want to have so many Christians in our population that there's nobody left. There are entire cities that are just bare. But that only happens if I become Ruth and give up my Naomi-ness. I quit being bitter and I get in faith. Then I can walk out God's perfect will. Then I will attract other believers. That's what I want. I hope you do too. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.